Hello, listeners, and welcome to Cult Curiosity, the movie podcast. We discuss all the great cult films in cinema history. I'm your host, Marcus McNeil, joined here, as always, by my stalwart co-host, Mr. David Murphy. How's it going? Uh, very well, thank you, Marcus. Hello, listeners. All right, so we're a bit late in terms <laughs> of what we've been doing for the month of February with covering black exploitation films, but... Uh, David and I have these things called lives, and they tend to interfere with watching movies sometimes. But we're still going to go ahead and finish it off as we're here in early March. And David, what are we going to be reviewing today? We will be reviewing the uh, 1971 uh, black exploitation classic Shaft. Uh, how could we not? How could we not do a black exploitation season? We and do cover a this? grave misservice <laughs> if we <Yes>. didn't. <laughs> Yep, that is Shaft 1971, not to be confused with the 2000 version or the version coming up in 2019. Oh, is uh, there another one? Real... I wasn't aware there was yeah. another one on the way. Yes. Yeah, there's another one coming out. I wasn't aware either until like three days ago. I saw a picture of it who's, get released who's online. Shaft in, in this one? Uh, all of them. All of them? Yes. <laughs> so uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Richard Roundtree is coming back. Uh, and then there's a uh, new actor playing the... Son, I believe, of Samuel Jackson Shaft. So it's important to remember that the 2000 Shaft oh, so is an indirect it's, it's sequel. A so it's still now, is it? Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah this the Shaft universe has always been a universe. We're going to discuss this later on in the podcast when we get to it. Uh, so yeah, that's starring Richard Roundtree, Moses Gunn, uh, Charles Coffey. So this is really the quintessential black exploitation film. When people mm-hmm. think of the genre, this is the imagery that pops in their head. Yeah. Um, absolutely, and for for good reason as well. I think um, it defines very much what began with Sweet Sweetback, which obviously we did first in our season. Um, it takes the kind of ideas of you know those kind of. I I think it subverts the negative black stereotypes in this film. I, I think I, so too. I I think Shaft is actually an aspirational character. Um, he's super cool. Um, he doesn't take no shit from Whitey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, tough talking, street walking badass. Yes, yeah. yeah, he is. He is the ultimate um, black male power fantasy. Really, I think. I've heard it described in a lot of ways, and I think uh, this one is always suitable. Shaft is black James Bond, is essentially yes, yeah, what he comes yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we've we've discussed uh, this several times in this in this season, particularly obviously with yeah. Live and Let Die. Um, so it's it's fitting that we should end with the uh, the genuine article here. Yeah, and I've um I forgot to mention James Bond has always had this uh strong affinity with black viewers i don't know if you're mm-hmm. ever aware but he's uh he's quite like a, a kind of a cultural phenomenon so before shaft people were very much so into uh the james bond films so we'll go into the cult qualifications here of course main qualification is of course it's the essential uh black exploitation film uh but i think this movie unlike some films we cover was very very popular in the united states i can't get uh box office numbers on it but it was I think it was around 15, what I understand. 15, 15 million, which was a big deal mm-hmm. back in 1971. Um, slightly less than uh, Sweetback, um, surprisingly. Uh, even though yeah, do you think Shaft some of that more... might have been just carried through the whole word of mouth? Of course, with Sweet Sweetback being the, the first, first one out of the gate, people responded to it a lot more. Yeah, yeah, only by a few months. But um, 
Yeah, I think, but Shaft is a, is a more conventional and watchable film. Yeah, I, I was about to say slightly more polished. <laughs> <just> yeah. <a laughs> <little bit. laughs> um, but Sweet. yeah, it's it's cult qualifications are, are pretty clear for everyone to see. I think. Um, and I see you've put here in your notes, massively influential on American cinema. Um, do you think we're now, we're, only now that influence is really coming to fruition, though? Um, I think it's been sporadic over the years. I think, of course, with things like Black Panther being mm-hmm. so huge now, uh, it's, it's coming back again. But there's and, this period of, mm-hmm. I believe, the... 80s to like early 90s where people were very much so reaching back into Shaft for these sort of uh, cultish and (laughs) uh, almost video store quality um, action films and they all just pretty much copied the Shaft formula even if they weren't necessarily starring a black cast they all just sort of fit that mold it just became like this is the standard American action movie and it just followed the same beats of Shaft pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, just going back to the fact that I said that you know that, that this you know the influence on American cinema, um, black cinema. I think I was trying to make the point of that is only now really mm-hmm. reaching fruition. Obviously, we had Moonlight winning the Oscar last year, the first, I, I believe, the first um, best picture winner with a primarily black cast. Obviously, we've got Get Out that's up for one this weekend, and. Um, and it could win. I think there's a chance of winning. But obviously, this is the first time that we've done one of our black exploitation seasons since Black Panther has come out, um, which is obviously a huge sea change for Hollywood. Um, and yeah, I think you can trace those roots all the way back to Shaft. So its its influence is is definitely um, there for all to see. Yeah, I think uh, this is really. Uh, I think I haven't fully researched, but this is the first film franchise starring a black character, you know, being black cinema that we've had and mm-hmm. one of the longest lastings. We're still <laughs> in the midst of the, the Shaft franchise as we were discussing just a second ago. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really, I mean, you can't say enough about it. It is like the thing to think about when we think about black cinema, black exploitation and its lasting effects on the action movie genre, uh, detective movie genre. And some other things that I'm going to point out, too, that people might not be familiar with in terms of the film and uh, how it changed some things within the genre going forward from there. So we'll get into the reception part of it. It was well-reviewed at the time, but received some uh, mixed reactions. But I think everyone, as soon as this movie came out, recognized that this was something special and this is possibly going to be a game-changer. If not at a time, then down the line uh, for... Uh, film starring black actors in black cinema. Uh, this is probably the most sterling example of a well-made uh, black cinema film that we had and the greatest example of the black exploitation genre, as, as we said a couple of times already so far. But it seemed pretty much immediate that everyone knew this was something special. Yeah, and it, it's difficult to look... I mean, it's nearly 50 years old now, which, yeah. which is... Um, something to think about in itself um, <laughs> particularly since it only came out a few years before I was born um, but um, <laughs> it's 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 one of those that I'm I'm it's always a problem with retrospectives do you judge it by its time um, or do you judge it as how it stands up 
today because I think there is a very there is conflict in those views um, because obviously at the time it was a complete breath of fresh air. Um, I think it was coming on the coattails of the French Connection, so mm-hmm. we obviously had a major, uh, you know, detective film coming out before it but i think this obviously sent it in a slightly different direction um because the french connection is is all about the establishment really it's the establishment trying to keep control um you know through through mm, dubious means <laughs> shall we say <laughs> but um, something again we'd see later in in dirty harry um but this is more you know, working outside of those parameters. Um, Shaft is a, is a private detective. He has a license, right. which which Whitey's constantly threatening <laughs> to take away. That's that's what they hold over him. Um, but also, but looking at it now, the pacing is very languid. Um, it's I I struggled to say I was entertained by it for a, in long periods throughout the film it seems a bit deliberate a bit clunky um i don't think there's a great deal of subtext going on in the film unless it's completely passed me by no i was gonna say uh i shared some of your sentiments here it's like do you feel like it's almost and this is no fault of the movie it's own um it's it was made in 1971 mm. but it feels very much so you know, paint by numbers mm. at this point because we've seen so much of these same beats take place in other movies and maybe some other movies performed them better. So right now it all seems like, you know, there's no surprises in Shaft. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen anything like Dirty Harry or Death Wish or any number of these uh, sort of gritty American um, action movies over the course of the years? Shaft has no surprises. It's all very much so standard fare. And looking back on it, yeah, it's uh, it's very influential, but it's not necessarily the um, the pinnacle of these sort of movies. Exactly, like we said, no fault of the movie itself. It's just that, in retrospect, it's it doesn't really stand up to the test of time. We'll mention this more in, in regards to the legacy content uh, when we get to it later. But I think this film is more important for what it birthed and brought forward rather than the example of cinema that it actually is. So. Uh, in that way, I think it, uh, I think it was a little bit more. Um, how should I say this? Commercial than probably yeah. uh, some people uh, give it credit for. Like, yeah, it doesn't touch on a whole lot of things. There's themes of black militantism and things like that that pop up in the movie, but nothing is really explored. Shaft is kind of just presented as a pretty much straightforward antagonist as any other movie would, and in that way, it's. Uh, you know, I always have a hard time with this because should it be treated with a little bit more reverence because it deals with black culture or is it perfectly fine for Shaft just to be a normal big budget popcorn movie and have that just be what it is? Does it always have to take that extra step to do something more? Some things, as we saw at Black Panther, are able to do both and blend them together. But I don't think we were at that point in filmmaking yet where we could do those things. They had to be one or the other. You either got something like Sweetback or you got something like Shaft. And I I think uh, I would rather much prefer (laughs) something like Shaft at the end of the day. Yeah, I I think there's, there's a definite intention in it to kind of prove that black cinema can be competent. 
um, because what we saw with Tweetback, I, I would not describe Tweetback as as a competent film. It's an interesting film, but it is a very very hard watch. I mean, it's it's a it's a guttural cry of rage, Tweetback. Whereas this this feels more <laughs> like this is how we wish things were. Um, you know, Shaft is is the embodiment of 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 black power, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it doesn't have a rebellious. I mean, obviously at the time it must have felt very rebellious, but now looking back on it, it seems just really tame. Um, yeah, it's more of a more of a kind of snark and cheek to it than than any sort of a really empowerment piece. Yeah, uh, we could go further into the discussion here. Uh, I think some of the reason that, of course, uh, Shaft is viewed so well, either in retrospect or at the time, is that black exploitation was a notoriously rough genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time i mean uh we mentioned sweet bag there's other things the max superfly uh all these other films and they were really rough hewn and we have something like shaft that by comparison uh looks like citizen kane compared to some <laughs> of these other movies so i think that might have something to do with this reception this is a proof that like okay we can make these movies and they could star black actors and they can actually be decent and, and well-constructed films, even if they're not always effective. Uh, you can very much show the artistry here, and I think that comes through. Uh, I think Richard Roundtree was also probably the most capable star of one of these films that we've got to this point, too. Yeah, his performance is magnificent. Um, I, I would say um, a couple of things at this juncture. I, I think people probably love Shaft more because of the character than the film itself. But I know, I know, I've I've been harsh on its it, its pacing and so forth. But it it is of its time in that regard. A lot of films around that time were paced in a very similar manner. We're we're still a few years away from the kind of injection of adrenaline into editing that we saw in Spielberg's Jaws and particularly in George Lucas's Star Wars, which was yeah. I was just about to ask. I think those were to to two films I signify coming through in the seventies that kind of changed the whole thing in terms of yeah. blockbusters, in terms of how they're paced. So it's it can be difficult sometimes going back pre, you know, 1975 and looking at some of these films. I mean, even even something like The Godfather, which is still very revered and watched to this day, it, it's very languid. It's it's this very kind of slow, almost novel. I remember like having place. it on VHS. It took two VHSs <laughs> <Yeah>. for Godfather. <laughs> um, so it, it shouldn't, I'm not, I'm not criticizing it in that manner. I'm just saying these days it it doesn't stand up to what we would expect. Um, how a film like that would feel, the 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 pacing is is it's not off. It's just of its time. Yeah. Now with uh, Richard Roundtree here discussing him a little bit more. Yeah. I think, of course, he was Shaft in this iconic presence that I think. Uh, it really just changed. It changed like everything for uh, black males in that time period. The long leather jackets and everything like that. It just started a craze. I think this is probably like the first kind of merch craze that we had <laughs> when it came to cinema. Everybody had to go out and get the shaft jacket. They had to, you know, get the well maintained fro and the turtlenecks and. God, I even have pictures of my dad, and he looks like Shaft in full getup and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is his performance. Uh, 
was very empowering, but also his look was very striking too. And I think that changed a lot of things for uh, black males in this country that they had something sort of aspirational to be. They could be this sort of liberated person that wasn't beholden to anybody, but yet at the same time present themselves as this this presence that's above a normal street tough or even businessman or something like that. Shaft was just cool. And (laughs) it's the thing that everybody wanted to be. I think that kind of transcend racist too, is just uh, you see that sort of uh, person who operates under their own agency and everybody can get a little bit of enjoyment from it. Yeah. And I think perhaps even more crucially, he's independent. Um, He's beholden to nobody. Mm -hmm. Um, He's got his own, his own business um you know like i say he doesn't take any shit from the police and yeah i think that perhaps is even more crucial to to the impact he would have had on on uh african americans at the time is you know he's he's really doing it for himself not reliant on and of anything. course we've seen that a lot during the past with the uh, mm. film noir movies and they always focus on these private detectives and such but they're never s- as much as a, a sort of i mean superhero kind of when it comes down to it as the shaft is in this film yeah um i wouldn't go quite so i mean he's not he's not quite in the bond mold in, in no not in, quite in that regard um he's not yeah he doesn't operate with the same kind of impunity though it's definitely there um but you know the police are trying to rein him in for a lot of the film and trying to get information from him of what's going on in case anyone hasn't seen it the plot basically centers around shaft being um employed by what what is the rich black guy's um position who he needs <laughs> needs to get his his daughter back they don't really go into great detail in the movie <laughs> He calls him a There's, pimp. He calls him a pimp at one stage, but I don't think he is. He seems to be one of those types that has his uh, tendrils into a little bit of everything. So yeah. from when we first see uh, Bumpy John, uh, Jonas, I believe, we see he's in his office, and it looks like he has a miniature truck with his name on it uh that says um i think that's it's a right. garbage San- sanitation truck. so yeah yeah so he runs a sanitation so company but as a front for dealing heroin he's, he's, yeah, and possibly a, pipping too <laughs> he's a proto tony soprano isn't he yes yeah <laughs> um which is interesting because they do go up against the mafia because it is the mafia who is um holding his daughter uh trying to force a deal through um but yeah i think the gang violence side of it it's it's definitely there but i do think it's underplayed slightly as well yeah um we don't get to see it's uh it's greater effects on the community or anything like no, that no. they're played for action pieces and this is kind of how it is yeah there's as i've said commentary is does seem to be lacking somewhat um <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about the director gordon parks because he's mm-hmm. he's an interesting fellow yeah, I believe this was his second film. His first film was The Learning Tree, Learning Tree uh, which, which is... I recall because they always had to show that to us. And it was like a par bar required viewing in <laughs> elementary school. <laughs> Either you read the book or you watched the movie or you did some sort of combination of the two. Uh, yeah, he started his career as a um, 
photojournalist for um, Time, I believe, and a number of other Vogue. Vogue, he worked for yep. Vogue as well. Um, it was really the prominent uh, Black American photojournalist of of his day. So this was quite an important person uh, making this film. So I think uh, we see a lot of the uh, photography in the movie mm. really heightened above what we've seen in other things of the genre because you have someone so capable, really a legend in this field here, making this movie. Yeah, it's it's very well photographed as you'd expect. It, it is quite atmospheric. I really did feel immersed in, in kind of early 70s New York, um, which is always always a plus in my book. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I think those are my favorite parts of the film is just seeing Chad yeah. walk through New York and some of the photography there is... Because New York, of course, just doesn't look like that anymore. And <laughs> the the old seedy Times Square is long gone, washed away in the glitz and glam of you know Disney and advertisements and things like that. So it's always a welcome treat when I get to visit the uh, 1970s New York from the 80s on back. Yeah, yeah, same for me. I mean, I've I I, I watched um, the Deuce last year, um, the HBO show by David Simon, and I I just. Though I'm not always the biggest fan of David Simon's storytelling because he is very journalistic, um, because that's what he is. Um, <laughs> uh, I just, I just loved, I just love being immersed in that time. I think if if someone said you can be in any place at any time in history, I think yeah, 1970s New York is where I would want to be. Such such a such a melting pot at that point. Um, it just seem, it seems like the kind of place where anything could happen. Uh, good or bad, I might add. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. Go on. Sorry, go right ahead. Uh, no, I was. Uh, I was. Uh, are we done with Mr. Parks, or, or is there anything else you want to more you want to say about him? Oh, I, I think some of his shortcomings as a director do come through this movie too, especially in regards to some of the audio that we see here. I'm not sure <laughs> he had this, the strongest uh, ability to be in the editing room or anything like that and work on. I'm like, Oh man, this is kind of ADR bad in places. But um, I think we struggle a little bit when he starts to have these sort of like smaller, more sort of intimate conversations and moments in the film. Some of the things are pretty well done. I would say the action is fairly well shot, uh, much more so than I would have anticipated. Usually uh, in these older films through the 70s, the action is always very cringy. I was like, ooh, that's some bad stunt work here. But And this it actually comes off as quite visceral, even in the beginning when Shaft throws a guy out of a fucking window. He doesn't <laughs> actually throw out. him out the window. Does no, he? he doesn't. He, he just, just kind of dies. <laughs> I did think that was more like right out of damn something out of a Charlie <laughs> Chaplin film than a. <laughs> <laughs> it was still funny, but I was expecting yeah. it to be funnier than what it was. But um, I, I think just because the way it was shot, it was it, it came off as like, oh well, it was funny. He went through a window, but actually seeing him kind of sail out the window towards the street in New York was was a little bit of a shocker. But uh, yeah, I think he had a good wrangle in the film here. I think the. The action itself does come off a bit more uh, visceral, and I wish that I, I hate to say that I wish there was more action into it because I did enjoy some of the more tense moments, especially uh, you know the first piece that we saw when they're being assaulted in the uh, tenement house when he's yeah. dealing with um, I believe there's some sort of black militants, not quite the Black Panthers, but some sort of like smaller splinter group, and you know that whole crew gets massacred. Uh, it was. Pretty, pretty well done. So I, I would like to see the movie go in that more sort of 
tense, uh, action-driven direction. If it's going to be a more direct sort of action film, I just wanted more of that than some of the languid periods that we got further on. I was most entertained in those pieces. Yeah, me too. I, I must admit that sequence was was particularly tense. I, I think he could have done with extrapolating the uh, the final showdown a little bit more. That does that does mm-hmm. seem to um, end almost as soon as it begins. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was shocked by that. I was like, "Oh, that's oh, all right." There's the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what I enjoyed most about the film, which is coming up next in your notes, is is uh, Isaac Hayes' score, which is absolutely. Um, it's beyond iconic. It, it's yeah. it's sublime. It, it really is um, a step a step above. I think almost everything else in the film. Uh, obviously, we've got the main theme, which is was Oscar winning and is very very famous. But even then, there's there's lots of nice songs in in between, and just the score itself, I think, really propels the film through in in a way in a similar way to which the the Bond scores did for me. Um, yeah, to the point it also almost kind of morphs the film as a as a music video of sorts yeah. once it starts. Absolutely, you know, yeah. it opens it. with a music video. Yeah, it it yeah. really does. <laughs> and of course, that Shaft theme song—it's it's still to this day as far made back as this movie was. You mentioned the movie Shaft, and someone, if you're standing in an office or something like that, will start going, <laughs> and the lyrics will start flying out, and it crosses boundaries and ages and everything like that. It's just, it was one of those things that just got ingrained in people's heads as, as soon as they heard it. And even if they haven't seen the movie directly, everyone knows the Shaft theme song. It's just, it's just something that we grow up with. It's just here and present, and uh, I think... Really, when people think about Isaac Hayes, he had a long career as both an actor and a uh, musician, and it's still probably his his number one piece of work when uh, people look back on his career. Yeah, absolutely, and why why shouldn't it be? It, it's mm-hmm. um, it, it is absolutely magnificent. So yeah, that that did keep me compelled through some of its slower slower moments. Now here we'll go into some of the performances and things like that. Uh, we mentioned Richard Roundtree, and you know, to be quite honest, uh, I didn't get a whole lot from the other performances here. I, I think we uh, get to see him sort of interact with people more, but it always feels like people are reacting to Shaft, not so much as interacting with them. We either see people frustrated at him, or trying to kill him, or just having uh, some sort of passing brief discussions with them. Uh, but it just seems like Shaft is a character that really dominates over this film uh, to the point is really just a vehicle for Richard Roundtree and everybody else is just kind of circling around him. Yeah, it does. It does feel like that. Um, he's not a particularly nuanced character. I think that's, that's fair to say. Um, he starts the same and ends the same. He doesn't. Yeah. There's no, the there's no character arc <laughs> whatsoever. He is again, like Bond. He's, he's a tall, um, not, in the derogative sense, but he's, he's, <laughs> he's, he he has a purpose and he fulfills it. Um, but yeah, I I didn't think anyone embarrassed themselves elsewhere. No. Um, obviously, you know, you're saying people just react to him, um, and those reactions can be quite different. Um, I don't think women come off particularly well in this film. <laughs> they just seem to. What a film <laughs> in the seventies doesn't treat women with the most <laughs> regard. I am I am shocked. <laughs> um but yeah i think it's it's quite interesting that the 
the white actor the white characters in it don't don't aren't particularly um um arch in their stereotypes um mm-hmm. the um detective that he he you know has a liaison with in the um in the uh, New York police department is is quite a sympathetic character um obviously there's other people higher up who who aren't happy with what shaft does but I don't think that's because of his race. I just think it's because of his activities more than anything. So, yeah. yeah uh, I do wish we got to see more of uh, Moses Gunn as Bumpy. He yeah. actually was a, a quite well-known character actor in the United States for a long time. I mean, he had a, a long uh, history and career with the films prior to this and taking place after it. And I, I think that if we would have been able to see more of his interaction with Shaft that I think um, that could definitely elevate the film a little bit more because I did think they had a good rapport of Shaft uh, not really taking shit from anybody, but being in the presence of this uh, gangster who is kind of affable and collected. And he's the only person not shaken by Shaft's uh, abrasiveness in the movie because he has this, this confidence of his own. So we see this kind of uh, dueling black identities going at it here and I think that could have been played up and explored a little bit more could have made for a stronger film yeah I I agree with that but um yeah and he's he's particularly effective in the um scene where he he pleads with Shaft to to go and find his daughter in Shaft's office um doesn't seem to have um much concerns about his budget but um, no. <laughs> just I, was, I was like, shit, $50 an hour. That's a good rate. To- <laughs> that's a, that's a How much was that back rate then? Today, today, but back then, that's that's ridiculous. That would be about nearly, yeah, about, well, not quite. It'd be about just under $500 an hour um, plus expenses. Um, <laughs> like, hell, Shaft is retiring after this movie. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's how he was able to afford going to Africa. So, <laughs> we uh, get to the point where we can talk about our uh, memorable moments. For me, it's just, um, I, we already touched on it. I just, I like some of the action scenes, but I just really, for me, the whole thing was just New York really being a character in this film mm. and seeing it in the state that it was in, a, in the 1970s. It's, um, it's, it's really something that is starting to be lost to us a little bit. I feel fortunate enough, having grown up in a big city like Chicago, uh, during the 1980s and 90s and being able to kind of experience the uh, allure and the danger of what American big cities were at this point in time. Uh, over the course of history, they've been cleaned up quite a bit and they're much, yeah. much more safer. I, I know that sounds weird to a guy coming from Chicago, but our violence here is very concentrated in yeah. literally like three neighborhoods <laughs> and the greater city as a whole is, is very safe. And it's... Uh, it always kind of just takes me back to that time whenever I see, you know, the neon lights and people walking the streets in, you know, huddled leather jackets and the steam billowing out of manholes. It's just, uh, it's an era that has become lost to us. And it's, uh, it's something that I don't think that we really get to see much more of anyways. We get less and less period pieces, especially as concentrated in the acting genre these days. We either tend to be going uh, further back into uh, sort of this um, post-colonial sort of old west era America where we get these sort of shoot 'em ups and cowboy movies or everything is kind of modern fast and the furious st- stupidness <laughs> but this kind of seedy 
American uh, two-fisted action is lost to us, and it's, most of it taking place in these big cities is lost to us as well. Yeah, it's quite interesting you say that because where I live in the UK, which is Manchester, um, we're we're often used as a city as a stand-in for more period um, New York pieces. We were used in um, they filmed some of Captain America um, around here, the original, uh, the first uh, Marvel one. Um, and yeah, I I arrived in Manchester just before the turn of the millennium, and I I got to see the city as it was before. Um, it became more gentrified. Obviously, we had a horrific bombing here in the mid '90s, which you know has led to a lot of redevelopment afterwards. But yeah, so I can sympathise with your point of view that we are that kind of atmosphere is is being lost now on modern cities. Um, they're becoming very sanitised and um, just yeah, lacking character really yeah i think that's what it comes down to the fact that you can actually film other cities for other cities is the thing now toronto is often used as a stand-in for well pretty much every city on the planet (laughs) and uh it could be new york it could be chicago and vice versa everything's kind of mixed and mingled in between so uh, we're starting to lose some of the individual characters of these cities because everything is kind of becoming this pastiche of modernism and we don't really have those unique voices that the the cities have anymore. So that's my that's my takeaway with the movie. Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, my favorite moment is the opening. It is um, you know with the score blaring out and Shaft just walking around Times Square and stuff. It's it it sets the scene beautifully. Um, I just think it's a bit of a shame that the, maybe the rest <laughs> of the film doesn't doesn't quite live up to it. But um, yeah, I, I also enjoyed the last, the, the, the final showdown. But like I say, I, I did yeah. think it was it was over a little bit too too quickly. But, you know, there's probably budgetary constraints and so forth. Um, yeah, I'm starting to wonder if maybe some of those longer scenes and more drawn out mm. elements of the film were done on purpose to, to stretch out the, the runtime a little bit. Yeah, because it barely passes 90 minutes. So, yeah, I think you might have a point there. All right, so we could go now and start getting into our wrap-up segment, talking about the lasting legacy of this film. Would you say this film is genre-defining? I go back and forth between this, but I think the more that I think about it, the more I lean towards yes. What about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's why it was picked for this, this season. I mean, we could have done some other films. Like I said previously, I'm disappointed that we didn't really have a slot for... For Blackula, looking at black exploitation going down the horror route, we could have done Superfly. Um, that would have been good for me too because I haven't seen Blackula yet. So. No, I haven't. <laughs> that would have been a <laughs> but um, so that would have been interesting. But we had to pick this simply because it is mm-hmm. it is black exploitation defined. I, I but it, it's interesting that because we picked it because it's known as that. But do yeah. does it? Where's the exploitation? in this uh there's really not a lot i mean we see the black characters in this film and we've had this discussion about uh how black characters are portrayed in some of these other films like mm-hmm. even with sweetback it's it's not very positive <laughs> it's definitely exploitive i think we get one sort of very very pg sex scene in this yeah. movie most of the black characters that we encounter 
um, there's a few gangsters here. There's lots of normal people and, you know, nobody is out pimping and hooking and selling drugs and all this kind of stuff. Uh, we just kind of have the black community as a, a backdrop here, not, not a star. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard for me. And that's why I was always waffling with it because looking back on it now, yeah, it's just kind of more of a straightforward, you know, private dick story. It's not really black exploitation, quote unquote, anymore. It was at the time, I think, because of simply the color involved. <laughs> and I, I hate kind of saying it in that regard. But today it's just, yes, yeah, a standard sort of uh, action detective story. Yeah, I I agree. So I actually, I'm not... So having just said, I think it defines the genre. I don't think it does. <laughs> I've talked myself out of it. It's There is no real exploitation in there. Maybe it's because I had to watch Red Sparrow this week, which really is an exploitation <laughs> film, and I didn't expect it to be, uh, which really shocked me. Um, so maybe that's numbed me a little bit to any other exploitation. Um, but... Yeah, I, I, I must Do you think admit- it might be more or less because of the imagery that we see here? Because I'll say this, uh, with this being a much more polished film in terms of direction, costuming, everything like that, it feels more essential uh, black exploitation than is actually represented during the course of the film. Uh, that's at least what I get from it is that, you know, when I think of the visuals of Shaft, it feels exploitation, but the actual film itself uh, doesn't really feel beholden to that. Yeah, I'd I'd agree. It's 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 more polished than the rest of the genre, um, and yeah, I'm just again, I'm just I'm I'm searching for what anything that I thought. Well, yeah, that's that's exploitation, right there. Um, yeah, there's no there's no drugs. The violence is is pretty tame, even by standards of the time. Um, so yeah, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely black, but ploitation, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> yeah, we have to work on that. In. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what about this regard here? Is could we consider this uh, must-see American cinema? Uh, is it one of those movies that you know we see the top one hundred American films you have to see, whatever the article may be out there these days? Uh, the Shaft has a place in in all that. I'm gonna say no. No, I don't. I, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not convinced that it's, it's an essential watch. I think you just need to know about Shaft. I don't think you need to watch this film. I'm sure that's probably going against the grain of what I should say, um, and possibly what you're about to say. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I've seen other films. I mean, it's like Sweet Sweetback. Although I didn't enjoy it and I struggled to watch it, I did kind of feel like, well, yeah, I can see why that's important. I can see why that was different enough, why that was almost a, you know, a, a cinematic revolution. It, I try and think about it, though I'm not, you know, a film study student or anything like that, though I I, I was briefly. I, I do kind of think that I would have picked... If I was going to write a thesis, I would pick Sweetback, not Shaft. Put it that way. Um, so yeah, this is this is actually something that I struggle with too. Um, 
I think just in terms of culture and uh, the greater effects that it has, I would consider it a must-see watch, but it's also coming from, and this may just be the, the divide that we have across the pond here, uh, because growing up with more American television and cinema, uh, Shaft echoes a lot more mm. for us. So even though the film itself uh, doesn't maybe warrant a whole lot of dedication to it, and it's not to say that this is a bad movie or anything no, no, like I don't that. It's just, it's just a relatively standard movie. So if yeah. anybody's going into Shaft, watching it, thinking they're going to draw some sort of a greater cultural understanding uh, about black exploitation or, you know, the black experience in America, it's not there. So yeah. <laughs> it may disappoint in that regard. And I think when we think about black exploitation, uh, those are the things that we sort of think about in the view that we want to get. So in that way, I think, say, like Superfly is a much more of a necessary watch than, um, than uh, Shaft will be. So it's... Uh, it's very weird <laughs> because we think this is like the greatest example of it. But at the same time, uh, I think in trying to be more of a commercial film, it loses the, the sort of mystique around black exploitation and some of the hallmark uh, tropes and, and themes of black exploitation films that we see. Um, so we can actually go for it and speak a little bit more on that. I think what we see with both uh, Richard Roundtree's career and then films post-Shaft, uh, I already mentioned earlier before in the podcast, we see more of similar things take place. Uh, and this is something that maybe you're not you're not um, familiar with, but I know some listeners might not be. Uh, Richard Roundtree, as the tough-as-nails police detective person um, that we see in his career on Ford, he kind of sparked a a sub-character in a way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a trope of movies and action movies that he actually started. So I forget what, what film it was or TV show after this where he pl plays um, a police commissioner of some sort. So when we see films like uh, 21 Jump Street where Ice Cube plays like the shouting, snarling yeah. black police head, that's a character that Richard Roundtree sort of invented as he went on in his career post-Shaft. And I've seen this come up in a number, number of other movies too, even as far back as uh, Last Action Hero was also playing up that that trope too. And uh, we see Richard Roundtree over the course of his career continually come back and play these sort of characters. Uh, I think out of this whole genre too, he was he's definitely the longest lasting um, actor out of the whole bunch. He essentially just never stopped working up until this day. So the entire course of his acting career from Shaft on forward, he's just been uh, kind of ever present in American TV uh, and movies. He's, he's always there and it's always like a, Hey, everybody is Shaft sort of thing. Yeah. And he comes in for like a two episode arc and then he's gone and he's like on to the next, whatever the next big TV show is. I always found that interesting about his career post Shaft. Yeah. He's been in some quite, <coughs> interesting films actually subsequently and, and actually some more films that do subscribe to exploitation such as uh, Q the Winged Serpent and uh, Maniac Cop um, just seeing here he was in um, oh yeah I forgot he was in Maniac Cop too um, yeah. I also forgot he was in Seven so that was a, another big movie he was in was he? oh yeah he was yeah <laughs> oh yeah so he was um, yeah he was also in um, Ryan Johnson's Brick um, oh yeah, he was the. Uh, oh, again, he played that trope of <laughs> the shouting, you know, uh, black man in charge. So um, 
you know, I don't know, I'm not sure if you ever hear the the term HNIC head head Negro in charge or insert other uh, N word. <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're far too is... polite over here for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in America, that's certainly uh, a thing in our culture is the the black man of authority and richard roundtree is the american black man of authority that from shaft on forward that has become his his lot as both a uh person and as his uh his career is unfolded mm. um so yeah um are we still doing must see american cinema or are we move I think we're moving on here, so let's let's talk about the Shaft franchise as a whole because mm. we spoke on this a little bit earlier. Uh, this is really the first film franchise that we see where uh, how many initial movies was it? Was it three? I think, I think so. We had Shaft, big yeah, score we had Shaft. There's Shaft. yeah, the big score, then Shaft in Africa. So yeah. This is the first film franchise that we get uh, starring a black character. And well, what about what that... about um, Mr. Tibbs? He had a couple. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. I think these these films are more commercial in that yeah. regard, but I think the whole uh, In the Heat of the Night franchise, because that went through both films and carried over into TV as well. So yeah. that was definitely there too. I think this is the, the first sort of mass-marketed, mass-appeal thing that we get, and akin to something that we see these days. Do you feel like it's been kind of a strange thing that we kind of get this with Shaft and we didn't really see it again for a long time. And then now finally with Black Panther being now, we're back into that mold again. And that's a long gap of time <laughs> in between these two franchises. And maybe it goes a little bit into the dialogue of why that movie gained so much traction in terms of uh, the scope and what it was doing for black cinema. Yeah. Um, again, I'd, I'd agree with that. It, it does seem that the franchises based around black characters, um, are well, they're few and far between. I, I don't think it's quite the gap that you made it out to me there of um, <laughs> nearly um, 40, 40 years or whatever. Um, but uh, I, again, I'm just not quite familiar enough with with the kind of um, genre in in its entirety. But um, uh, were there more than one Superfly films? Um. Uh, who? That's a good question. Quick Google will show. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I want to say that there was. I think there was two. Mm, I've got a feeling there was. Yeah, there. I think there was a. Uh, yeah, there's Superfly and a Return of Superfly. There so we go. We yeah. only had. Yeah, we only had two there. Um. I think actually no, there were three. There were three Superfly films in total. Yeah, so I do. But does that really count, though? Because <laughs> I'm more thinking about. I'm not really thinking about in the terms of, uh, say, black exploitation. I'm thinking about more in the terms of uh, mainstream um, film franchises. Oh, well, absolutely. So yeah, yeah. That's. Yeah. Um, I can't. I mean, obviously, Samuel L. Jackson is 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 one of the most prevalent actors ever, but. Um, how many franchises have actually been based around one of his characters? Um, they're, they're very few and far between in that regard. Obviously, he's been in franchises, but um, none of them have been based around, you know, a lead role that he's had. So, 
Yeah, um, obviously now we are seeing, we hope that's about to change with, with well, there is obviously going to be a Black Panther 2. Um, Why well, no way? <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got a strong feeling about that. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think it's... Yeah, and that's that, I think, is just goes to show why Black Panther is such a big deal at the moment, um, that we've, we've finally broken through on that regard. But it has taken a long, long time since this... that it originally happened nearly, you know, 40, 50 years ago. So... But I find it interesting they're bringing the Shaft franchise back. I presume this must have been greenlit before Black Panther. Um, yeah, it's been uh, currently filming so far this year already, so yeah. quite a while. Have you seen the remake? Uh, Well, like we said, it's, it's a continuation, well, semi-remake, because uh, Richard Roundtree as Shaft oh, does yeah, he's, appear he's in his, the movie. He's Samuel L. Jackson's uncle, isn't he? Uncle, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That kind of thing. Um, yeah, I have seen it, and I think people look at it quite fondly. We actually, I, I remember it most because Christian Bale is a rather uh, snarling and unhinged mm. villain in the movie. And he always stuck out to me. It's, it's a passable action movie, so this is just kind of the thing that the Shaft movies are. You know, they're mass-marketed, you know, mainstream movies that really just kind of hold up to that same thing. So I had it in the notes here, Shaft's uh, influence on uh, other media. Uh, I think that we we just kind of assume that if we get this sort of, you know, boots on the ground, gritty, urban uh, detective story that it just it follows the mold of Shaft. If the guy's not wearing a leather jacket in the film at some point, <laughs> we know some grave mistake has been made. Someone didn't do their research. Uh, I struggle to find a whole lot more that carried over beyond that, except some of some things I mentioned in terms of um, Richard Roundtree and his depiction and the visuals that stuck with the character and uh, just the imagery of Shaft himself being iconic is, is something that is constantly... Uh, repeat it throughout media so we get these characters that are just kind of shaft analogs that pop yeah. up here and there across media and we all know what it's in, intended to hold and uh when we cover black dynamite we see that a lot too black dynamite who essentially is just you know a, a kung fu version of shaft when mm. down to it. so i think it's uh it's something that's still prevalent in media and it's something that's probably going to continue for a long time i don't think Shaft is ever going to drop out of the lexicon in terms of uh, people being knowledgeable about him, or very least uh, understanding what the character represents as a whole. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it, it Shaft in a way kind of takes the private detective um, genre out out of its uh, noir trappings that it had been in for basically the previous thirty years at that point. So it. it yeah, it must have felt quite fresh at the time, although it, it, like I say, it feels quite tame and a bit staid by today's standards. At at the time, it, yeah, it, I can see why it made such an impact. All right, now as we wrap things up, David and I usually share our cult ratings. Uh, David, this one's going to be a hard one for mm. me. I'm really, I'm still undecided right now as I'm speaking exactly where. I play Shaft that um, I'll let you fall on the sword first. Where, <laughs> where is uh, in our rating system? Where do you place Shaft among all these selections? I'm 
wavering between basically like the top four ratings that we have, but I think I'm I'm mainly stuck between two, whether it's a collector's item or whether it's a curate's egg. But I don't think there's anything I'm not gonna give it a curate's egg because there's nothing particularly bad in this film. Um, mm-hmm. It has it has highlights, it has standouts, uh, Roundtree's performance and the score, uh, excellent. And yes, it's it's um, very well photographed. But there's nothing that really goes the opposite direction. Like I say, oh that that really didn't work. So I'm I'm hesitant to give it a cult. I, some people might expect we're going to give it a cult classic, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think it deserves the. Um, it's not a classic film. Um, like I say, I don't think it's essential watching um, unless you're really into black exploitation, in which case it is. So that's why the collector's item rating is there. So I'm going to give it a collector's item. You know, if we were making this podcast in, say, 1991, <laughs> I would have gave it a cult the classic rating. But I think uh, time is just it's unkind to some mm. of these films as we watched him i'm sure and it's not just beholden the shaft uh, if we go back we also had this discussion when we uh recover live and let die it's just something that sort of happens with these movies uh, i think action films are more subject to modernization and the gloss and the improvement in screenplays and directing and things like that to come across and so when you go back and look at some of these films it just feels like you're you're staring at a fossil almost. It's yeah. just like a little thing that was made at this time, but, you know, really has its place. So for me, I'm going to agree with you. If I had to rate it anything, it's going to be a collector's item. I think if you are really into black exploitation and you want to check out the films, Shaft is something that you have to watch. But especially since some of the things from the film have penetrated other genres so much, and especially in American culture, is so just ever-present that you just kind of... You get it through osmosis. You don't necessarily have to go back and watch the film. So, yeah, even though it seemed like we we may have disagreed on some things here, I think we come to the same conclusion of, about its place in, in pop culture from here on. Yeah, actually, if I can just specify for our, our um, listeners here, the cult to classic rating doesn't necessarily designate a cult classic. I do think Shaft is a cult classic. But yes, absolutely. The, the cult to classic rating is there for films that have escaped its cult trappings and moved into a different, you know, it's moved up to the, the higher echelons of, of um, the medium, really. So I, I hope that covers any confusion that some of our listeners <laughs> might have there. Yeah, I don't want to get any emails about this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to pretty much do it for us, and that finishes all of black exploitation. As we close out here, David, do you want to just have any uh, sort of miniature commentary or discussion about the black exploitation genre as we reflect on it here? Uh, is it really something that had its place in now in this possible uh, new beginning of an age of black cinema? Are we just kind of past these sort of things, and they're going to be for the history books, and we're never going to revisit them too much? I, uh, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I must admit, it's one that I anticipated I would enjoy a little bit more. Um, but at the same point, it's been nothing less than fascinating. I think, like you say, we are now at the dawn of a new age of, of black cinema and a very welcome one it is too. It's been 
it's taken far, far, far too long um, for this to happen to the point where even in my review for Black Panther, which I put on our sister site, uh, Hero Index, um, where I tried to downplay the, the kind of race card, as it were, because I just wanted it to be seen as a great superhero film. We need to get over this quite quickly, I think. Yes, it's exciting and it's necessary, but at the same point, the sooner we normalise it, the better. Um, so, yeah, um, it's obviously very important, but I do feel that most of the films are probably more artefacts than anything else now. Um, we haven't gone as deep into it as perhaps I would have liked, but at the same point, um, I think we don't necessarily need to as well. <laughs> Black exploitation has, has been and gone. It's not really... It's I don't see it making a comeback as a genre, particularly outside of spoofs like Black Dynamite and so forth. Um, and even that's not going to be a black exploitation film in its um, sequel. So, <laughs> no, not truly. Oh, by yeah. the way, the uh, Indiegogo campaign for Outlaw Johnny Black is out there. So, if you're willing nice. to drop a thousand dollars, you'll be able to go to <laughs> the premiere of it. <laughs> I was like, hmm, that might be tempting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I gotta agree with you because the only movie we even have in that pipeline is, of course, the uh, whatever you want to call. It. <laughs> with the next Shaft movie and then uh, what we have with Outlaw Johnny Black. And I think this is the the marvelous thing, uh, no pun intended here, that Black Panther was able to do. It was able to kind of have these dialogues about the Black experience within the confines of a major mainstream superhero uh, action movie. Uh, I think a lot of the initial buzz that we got about Black Panther was one way, but I feel like it's changing now because there's a lot of context that was layered in Black Panther. And I see there's kind of a divide basically between black people and white people <laughs> about some of the things, because there's a lot of context um, about things in the black experience and black culture and uh, intra-racial relationships that some white viewers won't pick on that Black Panther uh, touches on throughout the film. So in a weird way, um, we're saying a lot more and having to spend a lot less time and not make these sort of um, sorry, expletive movies dealing with it. So, yeah, I agree. Um, Black exploitation is in and of its time and its time is coming on. It's something that should be preserved and looked back on. But uh, I think we're we're at the point where we have moved beyond both the politics and the depictions of things with the genre. And it's probably for the best <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, obviously it's a genre that's attributed with a lot of negative black stereotypes. I, I think, you know, not only saying I don't think it's going to come back, I don't think it'd be allowed to come back either. I think, um, you know, the uh, politically correct brigade would, would come down like a ton of bricks. Because <laughs> I was going to just mention, do we think that Get Out is a black exploitation film? But it isn't. It isn't at all, no. really. Um, it's far more sophisticated. And um, yeah, again, there are not, you know, there's not. Yeah, all right, maybe is is black security guard friend is a bit of a stereotype but um <laughs> you know there's there's no there's nothing stereotypical about uh, daniel kalua's uh, character in that so 
I gotta um, say that character, the secured the TSA agent was <laughs> he he's essentially like the shouting black person in the audience of every horror movie thrown into the yeah, <laughs> I must admit, I when I went to see it in the cinema, I think me and my girlfriend, we were the only we were the only white people. Uh, <laughs> and there was there was a lot of there was a lot of audience interaction, put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, so when you go see a movie with black people, it is um, it is not a spectator sport. <laughs> so you have to get involved. Uh, now, I do think that it's. I always have these conversations with people. Do we see those sort of hood movies of like the nineties, mm. black exploitations? I would say, in a way, yeah. some of them are cute closer to it. Like maybe something like Boys in the Hood is kind of like in the middle, but. Then you have things like, say, uh, New Jack City and stuff like that. Where I feel like they're very much more in the vein of black exploitation than they are like a standard sort of uh, crime drama. And that's that's why I get from those. If you go back and look at them, um, they're very they're very rough <laughs> in terms of how they depict uh, the '90s and '80s drug culture um, in the inner cities, uh, interaction between black people and everything like that. So I do feel like. That was the last crest of like the black exploitation yeah, genre I always, as it started to morph and go into that era. Yeah, I always felt they were an evolution of, of black exploitation. They're, they're more sophisticated than than black exploitation mm-hmm. was. There's a lot more social commentary in those those films than um, than there was in in the um, yeah in black exploitation films of the seventies. But yeah, you've you've definitely got a point there. But I think that was, that was probably the end of it there. All right. Now we've gone long over our runtime here, so we're going to wrap up this episode and this particular series with cult curiosity. Uh, we're going to come back in the next couple of weeks with some all-new movies to review with an all-new sort of season of things that we cover. Uh, what's next on the docket, David? Uh, we our next season. Right our next season is entitled Insert Cult to Play with Hollywood um, trying a, yet again to harness video games into their uh, business plans with Tomb Raider and Ready Player One coming out next month, or this month now, actually. Um, we will be looking at cult films, which don't aren't directly attributed to video games, but borrow heavily from... Yeah, we won't be covering Mortal Kombat. Either. No, no, we're not... <laughs> That would be the same podcast. Every- <laughs> yeah, it was shit. Like, oh, here's a video game movie. It sucks. Yeah. On the next one. <laughs> so we are going to be looking at a Russian film called Hardcore Henry, which I, I believe ne- neither me or you have seen yet. But um, nope. that's quite interesting. That is told. That's told from entirely first person perspective. It's supposed to be like basically a cinematic equivalent of a first person shooter. We will be looking at uh, the. South Korean film The Raid, uh, which definitely borrows heavily from the structure of video games. We will also be looking at Scott Pilgrim versus the World, uh, which obviously has a lot of video game tropes contained within it and stylizations. And finally, we will be looking at Snowpiercer, which I believe owes quite a debt to the Bioshock franchise. So, yeah, an interesting month coming up, I think. All right, and I'm looking forward to it. So thank you everyone for tuning in. We'll catch you next time here on Cult Curiosity. Have a good one.